Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators in higher education. I'm your host, Heather Shea Gasser from Michigan State University. Today, I am talking with Dr. Kathy O'Bear about navigating workplace conflict in student affairs. You can participate in our back channel conversation by tweeting to the hashtag HigherEdLive. And thanks again to my friend Val Hureska for monitoring our back channel today. So in a moment, I'll introduce you to Kathy, but I can't do that without first giving a shout out to our sponsors who make Student Affairs Live possible. We are a part of the Higher Ed Live Network, where you can tune into episodes with my friend and co-host Tony Duty and me on Wednesdays at 1 o'clock Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, we highly recommend that you check out our archives, uh, which we're tweeting out a link to now. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a marketing and communications firm that works with education institutions on branding, strategy, web design, and more. Are you preparing for a website redesign project? Knowing that your website needs an overhaul isn't usually the problem. Getting started is. Download M. Stoner's helpful seven-step checklist to get you started on the right path for a successful website redesign. Student Affairs Live is also exclusively sponsored by ACPA. ACPA, College Student Educators International, is pleased to provide support for Student Affairs Live as one of the many ways that you can be innovative in your own professional development delivery. Last week, ACPA took decisive action, aligned with their values, and moved their Student Affairs Assessment Institute from North Carolina to Baltimore, Maryland. For more information about this decision, as well as a link to resources, read the content link that we're tweeting out now. Now on with the episode. So I'm so grateful for the opportunity to spend the next hour with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, founding faculty member of the Social Justice Training Institute and president of Alliance for Change Consulting and Coaching. Kathy has worked closely with staff, students, and administrative leaders at hundreds of colleges and university campuses to create equitable and inclusive organizations. Um, her latest book, Turn the Tide, is an important resource for anyone facing challenging situations with colleagues in the workplace. Uh, I really wish I would have had this book a decade ago. Um, and you can download a link to a PDF um, version of this book by uh, clicking on the link that we're tweeting out now. So we've got a lot today, so we're gonna get started. Uh, thanks so much for being here with me today, Kathy. Oh, I'm delighted, thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do when you are not busy writing a book. Well, right now I'm looking out at Central Park, which is gorgeous spring. I like to be out in nature. I'm also researching my next book on uh, change agents and how to do self-care and healing so we can be the best change agent in the moment. I'm doing lots of training, consulting, more executive leadership, coaching, and just loving it. And mostly I'm reveling in the win and the history making of the Yukon women last night. So it's just been a great 24 hours. <laughs> Again, Yukon women. Again. <laughs> um, so Kathy, how did you get into this work about navigating dynamics in the workplace? You know, when I was in student affairs decades ago, I had no consciousness of this. Um, and it wasn't until I started my doctorate at University of Massachusetts Amherst, I had a couple mentors, Jerry Weinstein, Bailey Jackson, who were teaching about these issues and self-work, and it was a whole new concept for me. And the specific was I was co-teaching with Bailey a course on facilitating workshops, a graduate-level course. 
And my memory is about halfway or a third of the way through the course, he said, Kathy, your content is good, but the students aren't connecting with you because you're coming across in a way that's judgmental, distancing. And I was just shocked because I thought this was something I did especially well. And he said, if you'll go to this place called the National Training Lab and do some healing work and understand your triggers, again, language I didn't understand, I will pay for it. And so I took him up on it. So that was 91. And I changed my dissertation work um, because I realized that all the training I was doing, all the teaching, I was only as useful as people could take me in. And if my style, my approach, or if I was triggered in emotion, I was pushing folks away. And so just as a strategy of practicality, I wasn't achieving my goals because of how I showed up as an instrument in the work. Wow. Um, can you talk about how this is related then to your work, work around social justice? I know a lot of folks who are watching today know you, you know, closely with that, how it's, how it's related and then maybe how it's different. I have everything so intertwined. Mm -hmm. I have so many stories I could tell you about doing diversity trainings, inclusion workshops where I was so triggered, I was not effective. And so again, I have this goal of creating inclusion, social justice, liberation, equity, and yet, if people are triggered in the workshops and not hearing each other, if I'm then triggered, I have that wave of emotion or I fight, flight, freeze, then we're not educating. But more on campuses, if we're not able to engage others in difficult conversations, contested issues, then we're not going to create sustainable change. So it's not only the individual level that's important, but if you have a diversity inclusion team, if you have senior leaders and they're stuck because they can't hear each other, the students in this national context that are raising issues, many campuses are not engaging and listening because the leaders are triggered. They're thinking they're going to call I'm racist. They're saying I'm classist. And they're not able to show up. They haven't done their own inner work. They're deeply triggered, in my opinion, in my experience. And so folks are missing each other. And so we aren't getting the dialogue and the sustainable change that's needed. If we all as individuals can navigate ourselves when we feel triggered, and then the advanced skills to be able to facilitate dialogues when others are triggered, that's when I believe true social justice can happen. It's wow. not the only way because yeah. there's other systemic change, but this is so central to moving forward. I really like how you talk about it at the individual level, the group level, and then the broader societal level and how this has implications. Um, let's take a step back, though, because I want to give some practical examples for folks who aren't familiar with a concrete um, piece of triggers and hot buttons um, can you give us a definition uh, for folks who haven't read your book yet um, and some examples specifically of triggers and hot buttons? My guess is everyone listening can experience and has that wave of emotion comes out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. They might have been in a pretty good space. Then somebody says something. They have a thought, a memory. They see an image and they get this wave of emotion. It could be two or three on a scale of zero to ten or it could be a ten or plus. Just these deep emotions, unexpected. And you're often knocked off your game. I know I could be focused one minute and the next minute I'm just spinning and thinking about what just happened or I'm scared thinking about why I'm not good enough or I'm triggered in a competence. And so it's the circumstances around us that re-trigger in us something and that we have these wave of emotions, these thoughts that then we're not usually able to show up effective. We have split second automatic unconscious reactions usually Sometimes those are effective. I have maybe five or 10 stories from my entire life. Most of the time when I react unconsciously, I'm coming out of old issues, current issues, and I react in ways I later regret. And that's the theme as I work with people all these decades. They wish they could rewind. Um, 
some quick examples. When the Ferguson non-indictment came out, I was so deeply triggered into a level of despair and hopelessness that I have not known before. And the next several days, I had low energy and just couldn't focus on what I wanted to do. Um, I had been nervous, scared, angry, depressed before, but this was a different level. And so that was a deep trigger. Other folks, and I relate, I'm in a meeting and I make a suggestion. No one listens. Someone else who's got my corresponding privileged identity says it. So in my case, a heterosexual or someone that identifies as male. And all of a sudden, everybody loves it. Or there's a racist comment and no one says anything. And the person of color is expected and everyone kind of turns and looks sideways, expecting them to speak up one more time. Uh, voices getting privileged in groups. Um, the third time you've said we need to do accessibility issues in our staff training and nothing ever changes and you're the only person with a disability and the only person raising it and there are no allies accomplices. So those may be very similar to what people are experiencing. And then at the systems level, policies and practices just don't change. We're hiring. The practices look good, but we're still hiring the same folks, the same demographics, no increase in multicultural competence. And they're still making decisions without input that negatively impact, particularly folks with multiple marginal identities. Any and all of that could be the one trigger that then sets off the cumulative impact. You're like, because this isn't the first time I've had that microaggression. Yeah. So what are some of the ways that we can recognize that we've been triggered? I mean, you talk about this um, response, but, you know, what happens physiologically? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining kind of heart racing. I mean, so sometimes that happens unconsciously without us actually knowing that this is what just happened. Talk a little bit about some of those responses. You could do this workshop. (laughs) You do. Some people might notice, like you said, the heart, they may change um, uh, warmth and some people change skin color. So other people often notice we're triggered before we are. I often will be clicking a pen and I don't know it until a colleague will point it out. I often don't know I'm triggered, especially earlier until I see someone's face and that I've already reacted Um, I get much slower in my speech. I sometimes lean forward. I get irritable. I get this grr feeling. Other folks, uh, that's if I'm in the fight mode. If I get in the freeze mode, then I can't think straight. I don't know what to say. People might know they're triggered if they want to leave and flee and get out of there, or they literally shut down, or they start doodling. I'm doodling it right now. Um, So they may notice the wave of emotion of feelings that often are disproportionate to the moment, but may not be. Someone makes a classist comment and you've got this much emotion. You're like, that's the emotion that is, seems reasonable. Other times someone can make a homophobic reaction and I have this much because that's the fifth time I've heard it today or this week. So if I'm aware and I practice the tools that I write about, then usually I feel that initial wave And I want to say something in urgency. So those are mine. Everyone needs to find their own warning signs because I think it depends on your marginalized and privileged identities, your mosaic, your life experiences, and also maybe your personality and style. Did any of those ring true for you? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, I have definitely been in experiences in meetings where somebody says something and I just shut my book, stare straight ahead, no more contribution. You know, I mean, it's just... And it, it might have been the first time I said, you know, heard that, or it might have been the 50th time, which, which I think brings us to our next concept of cumulative impact, because all of these things stacked on top of each other, um, you know, have, have, a, have a broader impact. And we may not know yeah. that the, the time that I say something 
that was insensitive is actually the 40th time that somebody's heard it or the 10th time that day that somebody's heard it. Um, so talk a little bit about that concept of cumulative impact. Well, to start where you stopped, if you're the one that said it, yeah. my hope is you realize that your comment, even if your intent was clear, A, it could have been from some unconscious bias or unknowing. Yeah. But if someone has a face, can you make a face? I'm saying something, show me you're triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then I need to stop and say, did I say something that had an impact? Did I bump you? Something going on? And I mean, that's what I think a true ally accomplice is, especially across privileged identities to your marginalized. So to slow down and take all that defensiveness and fear and hold it and then engage. So that would be the first step. If I'm the one experiencing cumulative impact, um, you know, it's the fifth time that as a woman I've been interrupted and talked over in a meeting. There are some tools and skills that I can name that dynamic. But it also may not be safe if you're in the marginalized identity, Mm -hmm. by level or the reasons. And so part of it could be when you know you're at cumulative impact, before the meeting could tell a couple of your colleagues, um, would you be my accomplices today? We know these dynamics happen. I don't have it in me today. Um, without a career-ending move to engage, I will follow up, but I need you to take the lead, especially folks in their privileged identities. So at the individual level, I can look at my own self-care, I can meditate, I can visualize before the meeting, and in the meeting, I can pause, go inside, do a system scan, and notice who I'm at cumulative impact. But to really have worked so that you have colleagues who will have your back, that's at the individual level. If this is a pattern, and that your cumulative impact often and others are, then if the group has not done training on this, they could. And there's tons of resources we can talk about later in the book and on my website. But doing a team development on navigating triggers, group work within a social justice lens so people can talk about their privilege and marginalized identities when they commonly feel triggered out of both areas, how they commonly react, and what they need when they are triggered, especially cumulative impact. So if you at the group level, team building, you can change the culture and the skill level and then negotiate how we're going to engage each other. And then at the systems level, if there are patterns that are the reason you're at the cumulative impact, you can address when you're more centered, possibly, with the leaders. Here's some practices and policies I think we need to change because they're having impact on me and others of our group. And whether it's how we do supervision, performance management, how we engage in conflict. So, again, individual group. And you deserve space to release where you feel you can be brave and safe. And so whether it's in a peer coaching group, whether it's with mentors, whether it's having a group of folks that aren't on your campus, maybe community members that you know you have the cone of confidence and silence, um, a place where you can go, whether it's revising counseling, works that to heal Mm-hmm. And it's not that I'm never triggered, but if I do my self-work and self-care, I have less cumulative impact, so I'm more clear in the moment. I think that's what this is all about, so that when I do feel triggered, I'm not automatically responding, usually out of old issues, but I choose intentionally, strategically, given my group memberships and what's going on in the room in the national context, how I want to best be heard and what the group needs in the moment to move forward. Yeah. So you talk about the, those connections and those um, places of safety and the people who might also um, have your back, you know, in those types of moments when you feel like you won't respond maybe the most effectively as you could. It, that takes a lot of vulnerability to, um, to build those alliances and connections. 
And can you talk a little bit about folks, um, you know, how to go about doing that work, especially if you're brand new to an office or to a, you know, a new job? Like, how do you know who's a safe person who also, you know, may be able to align with you in those moments? I would hope folks have asked those questions even in the interview process. Mm -hmm. And it, it might be the second interview, but to ask questions about, tell me about workplace conflict and team building and how you all have set up your ability to engage each other, particularly around social justice issues, contested areas. Uh, tell me a story. Now, I'm the interviewee, right? Tell me a story about how you all have engaged issues of oppression and social justice and how you've changed policies. So I would hope people would be able to ask those types of questions because the people interviewing them may mention people or they themselves may show up in ways you're like, okay. And then, well, I haven't started a job in 30 years, so take this with a grain <laughs> of salt. But my guess is folks that start jobs may want to do one-on-ones with everyone they work with as well as ask people to introduce them to partners. And whether it's breakfast or lunch or a coffee afternoon, to engage and ask people about dynamics on campus and how their group memberships impact them. And so guide the conversation not just let the other person guide, but you know, talk about themselves as someone, again, I'm role-playing, someone who's first generation. Tell me about what it's like in your colleagues and do we talk about it? Or, and so being vulnerable to a point, not talking about my inner issues yet, it's almost like the breadcrumbs. Let me put down, you know, someone has a family member who's undocumented to say, you know, my experience with the whole immigration system has been horrific. What have you noticed? Who are the allies on campus around documentation and immigration and see how people respond? Um, talk about class, uh, religion, sexuality, it, and just at the systems level and the culture level, and if see how people show up, I think that's your first clue. And then once you're on campus, if they haven't done training again, ask them, when are we going to be doing some group development? Because every time a new person comes on board, we need to renegotiate, work in agreements, make sure triggers is a part of that conflict. Um, how did I do? I think I went off on a couple. Yeah, no, 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 that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. I want to, you know, move to this kind of concept of we spend a lot of time talking about how we react. Um, why are the reactions of the individuals the key to turning the tide versus the instigating circumstance or the underlying, you know, issues of oppression? Um, you know, particularly when a triggering action is really offensive or inappropriate, um, you know, shouldn't those folks who do or say those things be held accountable um, for their actions? And I love this binary. It's really a both and. Yeah. When I was prepping, you gave great questions, by the way. Um, I was remembering when I was a doc student, I was in a T group, a small group, and a well nationally renowned faculty member was the facilitator. And I remember at one point confronting him and saying, this process does not take into issue social justice and oppression. And he was so deeply triggered. He literally made a fist and leaned in towards me. And I wasn't that far away from, yeah, so I got triggered in all kinds of levels. And he was in deep anger and rage saying, we started out of dismantling racism and working. And so we were both so stuck in our perspective, so both deeply triggered, stakes in the ground. I never came back to it. He never did either. And we kind of moved along, but never really built, rebuilt our relationship. His behavior didn't change. My voice didn't get understood. I didn't have the tools and skills then. Today I would. And so it's a strategy. He was so triggered in the moment, his behavior, I thought, crossed a line. My pushing back with the energy that I did, he just kept pushing, and we never came back to it. If I today 
could do it differently, I would have talked to him the next day to say, can we revisit this? You were deeply triggered. I was deeply triggered. Tell me more about what was going on for you. And then I'd like to tell you what's going on for me. And once we can rebuild a connection relationship, then I'd want to say, and I'd like to talk about the impact of your behavior on me. I understand that what I said was a trigger for you, and I'll take a look at that. I understand why it was a trigger. How you responded, way trigger for me as an older, white, cisgender, heterosexual man, balling your fist, leaning in towards me. Can we talk about that? You can probably hear the multiple layers of learning we both would have had, but we ended literally at this. So for me, inappropriate offensive behavior policies have to be changed. If my energy is experienced like this and the other person resists, we're not going anywhere. And so these tools help me strategically think, and I even notice I'm now weaving and bobbing, how can I enter in a way that I'll be heard, engaged, we can have dialogue, and they will stay in to learn, grow, and shift how they move forward, and we build a relationship at the same time. Now, all these tools will not work every time. So you need grievance processes, you need HR, you need supervisory relationships, performance appraisals. You know, the second or third time somebody misgenders someone, Mm -hmm. there might be a different engagement. There might need to be a whole systems engagement and training. And there may need to be a supervisory. So instead of the person who is the one confronting from the marginal identity, the supervisor may need to sit down and say, what you are doing violates our um, practices and policies here. This is not a nice thing to do. This actually violates and some microaggression and violates our core values. And so let's talk about your professional development, my expectations of you moving forward. Um, so individually confronting and when that doesn't work or the person's like, that's not my strategy, my, then through supervision, but how a supervisor engages, if they're triggered or if they're coming out of their power and privilege and I'm the good white or I'm the good cisgender person and let me fix you, that energy is not going to create change. So how we engage at all levels is critical to create individual group systems change that we need. Yeah. So I was thinking about um, in, in my current life and also in past experiences, I've talked a lot about this idea of a sphere of control versus sphere of influence. And so as you were thinking, I was thinking about how, um, you know, to a certain extent, when we're talking about control, like we only have control over our own reactions. Like we can put out into the world our hopes and our, you know, what what we experience, but we can't ultimately change another person. Um and so it, we can all hope to learn through that as experiences. But I, I'm, I'm curious about this idea, though, is that when something is neither within my sphere of control nor my sphere of influence, like I can't really do anything. These are larger institutionalized societal oppression, um, genderism, racism. You know, how do we who care about this work remain inspired to act um, and find kind of this sense of renewal and hope that there is kind of a, po- a possible outcome? So two thoughts. I was never trained or good at coalition building and community organizing. And I think student affairs as an industry, a field, might have a lot to learn from some of our maybe cousins in national, international change work. And so how can we support our staff and faculty to build coalitions that may not come to mind? Community organizers, alumni, faculty, um, board members, 
union folks, so folks that are committed to equity inclusion in different ways, student leaders, so that there's nurturing, networking, and working together. And then how do we look at the strategic plan, the folks in formal inclusion, change teams, diversity councils that might also be resources for folks? They may want to get involved at the institutional or local or national level through ACPA, NASPA, CUHO, ACI. I feel bad. I didn't do them all. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be avenues there that could be refilling in the different advocacy, affinity organizations doing workshops. Um, and some of the reasons I got so triggered was my needing self-work. Yeah. And so uh, as a lesbian, I used to be triggered all over the place by the homophobia and heterosexism everywhere. As I did more healing work and as I did healing work around my father and my family system, and as I did more work around my internalized white supremacy and racist attitudes, so that's all connected. Mm-hmm. Today, I have much more capacity to stay present when folks say homophobic things or there's homophobic heterosexual practices because as a white person I've done racist things out of racial stereotypes I've perpetuated racist practices now I'm not condoning anything but I don't I come at it differently because I am you you are me so how do we work together at least the first couple times we engage the third fourth or fifth that's a different strategy but I can use these tools to navigate my own reactions and my roots that are fueling my overreaction that has me fight, fight, or fleas. Mm -hmm. And so I think that can impact renewal, self-work, healing, Mm -hmm. self-care. In the book, you talk a lot about those interpersonal roots. You want to kind of elaborate on that concept a little bit? Because I think that's a a key to understanding why we're having the reactions we're having, why we're triggered the way we are. And your hands even went out because I do yeah. see them as literally yeah. roots fueling. I used to believe that you triggered me, you pissed me off, you embarrassed me. And someone helped me see that I gave all my power away at that point. Instead of recognizing your behavior was a stimulus, a trigger for me, it may have been an appropriate offensive, but what's going on in me? I like the metaphor of going to a movie and some people are loving the movie. Some are bored, some are crying and some are falling asleep. The same stimulus, different reactions. How do you make sense? That's what we bring. It's almost the lenses through which. And so if I have unresolved issues, if literally you remind me of my third grade teacher and in a book report, I felt embarrassed and humiliated. If you say something, it could literally unconsciously re-trigger. I have no idea why, but then I have this energy towards you. Uh, If someone reminds me of my dinner table conversations and how I felt, um, I had all this unconscious energy towards white men until I did my own work. They would say something offensive, but I had this much energy because I hadn't resolved issues not only around my dad or sexually abused or sexism from men. And I'm resolved is not the right word. It's continually healing, Mm -hmm. but old issues, uh, cumulative impact. We've talked about if I'm exhausted, have the flu, you're up all night writing a paper. Mm -hmm. I have less of a shield. And so an issue will get in or I won't be able to think as clearly, you know, it's not about stuff and emotions. It's about honoring my emotions and then saying how much is about now and how much is about other issues. Um, fears. I uh, did something new for the first time the other day and had a level of anxiety I hadn't felt before. I was afraid I wouldn't be good or useful or helpful. And so I'm not good enough. And will people think I'm not competent? I'm an imposter. And so can you relate to any of those? Oh, yeah. This is a lot of our for sure. unmet needs. If we're in a workshop or a meeting and respect, inclusion are not being respect, you know, aren't being met, those could be roots, and there are a couple others. I 
can tell stories of how I've been biased towards. I said before I had issues with white men. They showed up great, but I had assumed who would they be. That's bias already in my privileged identities. I might have some assumptions about folks from different classes or immigration status. So helping people look at self-awareness, what are their different roots, do some healing work around those, really can help them in the moment recognize, ooh, I got a trigger, what's the root? And you can literally learn to scan in the moment. This isn't about me. This one's yours or who, no, this one's got a lot about me going on. I just had a fight with a friend and wow, that's coming into this. So really be able to discriminate, discreetly look at what's mine, what's yours, and then how do we engage? Or I need a break. I need five minutes to go get myself aligned so I can come back and be useful. Yeah. So on occasion, I have disproportionately overreacted, right? And and the person who I'm connecting with might be like, whoa, like that was not at all how I thought that that was going to play out. Um, how, what's the best way to recover, as, especially if that relationship might feel damaged um, in, that, in that case because of an overreaction? When, so I'm thinking about Social Justice Training Institute, which is often a place mm-hmm. as the white facilitator where I say and do things um, that not only have folks feel triggered, but also when I'm triggered. Occasionally, I've had times when I've noticed in the moment, again, I've noticed other folks' reactions. And so I can stop and say, I've noticed you had a reaction. I hear what I now, what I just said. I hear the impact. Can you say more about the impact? I apologize. So in the moment, acknowledge what I did, apologize, and then invite, not tell me, but I'm open to hearing the impact. And then listening deeply without all those pitfalls of yeah, buts, perfectly logical explanation, defensiveness. And in the moment may not be the time to engage. It could be a time to say, I noticed I had this reaction. I apologize. And you may want to come back later after you've done some work. So particularly if you've come out of your privileged identities, you may want to find some other folks. So if it's, you know, you're a senior leader and you realize that you disproportionately reacted, impacting folks of lower ranks, you may want to get some peer coaching from some other key leaders so that folks in the marginal identities aren't teaching or having to carry the burden of education. So as a white person going to some other whites, as someone who's got class privilege going to some other folks, and not so they tell me what I want to hear, but folks that have done their work and maybe farther along identity development who will tell me the truth. And then come back with humility. And even the first time, apologize, you may want to come back again. So I just wanted to check back in. If there was other things you wanted to say to me, I've had a few more ideas of what I intend to do differently if you want to hear and, and they could say no. So it's not a, you have to talk to me, but keeping the door open, especially if there's a hierarchical level or a privilege to marginalize and then demonstrate your change through the activities you're doing and then how you show up with them and others publicly. So they see you are different. That's the best way to remedy and rebuild the relationship. Yeah, those are great suggestions. Um, We have had a couple of questions come in over Twitter. And so I want to get to one of them now um, and I want to encourage everybody who's watching today, if you have questions for Kathy that you'd like me to try to integrate um, into our conversation today, please send them to the hashtag Higher Ed Live. So Sarah Ackerson asked the question, how do you address dealing with conflict when the other person has a very close relationship with your supervisor? Um, it's a great question. And that never happens in student affairs. Never, ever. <laughs> 
So if I had more context, I'd have different perspectives possibly. Um, One might be to negotiate with your supervisor, given your relationships and my relationships, this is pre or before you have that conversation. There may be times when I am in conflict with people that you know and I know. And so how are ways you've dealt with that before? Can we negotiate that? Doing the same thing with people that you work with, your partners, your colleagues. Now, this might be a situation where it's the first time they had to engage this person. But if there are people in your life on your work team, the next couple circles, and you know they're close to your supervisor, negotiating, hmm, we're working together. How do we do that in a way that when we bump, you and I can have that conversation? And if we need to bring my supervisor in because you believe you're not getting what you need from me, how do we do that? But all that pre-work, so that when that moment happens. And then the best of my thinking right now, to be able to say to the person, I'd like to have this conversation with you. We are in a conflict that I really want to hear your perspective. I'd love you to hear mine. And I think together we can work this out. And I'm also aware that my understanding is you're close friends with my supervisor. And that actually is weighing on my heart right now. And I'm, well, what are my concerns? I, I wonder if, we have a chance to work this out among us um, as colleagues. Oops. Yeah, that, I think that's a great approach. I mean, I think one of the challenges of that situation is you never know what you're saying to that person might get back to your supervisor, right? I mean, I think that yep. the crux of the conflict is that feeling of um, there's a third person involved in this interaction here, and I may not have a direct line. So, yeah, I think those are good um Good places to start. I, I want to talk specifically about some of the characteristics of uh, student affairs and how this work interfaces, because I think um, your your book is really broadly focused, and I think that's um, really helpful for everybody who reads it, because there's lots of ways that this can interface. But in specifically in student affairs, one of the things that I've experienced is that um, you know because of our values, we try to keep our offices as flat as possible. Um, kind of in eliminating as much institutionally imposed hierarchy, you know, cre- creating transparency between leaders and, and um, others. But kind of what I've experienced, though, is at the end of the day, the supervisors are still responsible for assessing the performance of the people who they supervise. Um, that dynamics of performance appraisals, you know, in my experience as a, as a former supervisor, was the source of so much um, interpersonal conflict and concern. Um, because there's there's a, it's a high stakes uh, situation. Now, how do you navigate that? How do you navigate those kinds of conflicts that can arise through performance appraisals, Kathy? That might be your next book. <laughs> yeah. oh. A couple thoughts come to mind again. Negotiating that early. I know I've not been a supervisor in a long time, but I've been on teams where I've been the lead, and we've had conversations about. My privilege of marginal identities, theirs, how these might interface, uh, my role in leading and giving feedback, then um, people can see I had a role. So it wasn't like this, but I was. And so wanting folks to be able to give me feedback and negotiate and plan together, which does sound very similar to how many supervisors probably work in student affairs. And yet I had the hierarchical authority and required to, for the quality. Right. not by myself put together and so we negotiated how we wanted to work together what conflicts might come up within the framework of our group memberships particularly our privileged and marginalized 
And then talking about my style of engagement, what is useful when there is a conflict, what helps me and does that work for you? And then getting on the table, they're marginalized and my privilege particularly and how my approach might be centered in uh, my whiteness or age or particularly female, um, avoiding conflict. And so at least that was my experience. So that kind of authentic dialogue sounds good. I think it's difficult to do. I don't think we give supervisors the training or space and time to do that. When people are onboarded, it's often in a high stress time. And so how to intentionally redesign the onboarding recruitment period so that those conversations happen over time. Another thing is one of my colleagues once said, nothing should ever come up in the performance appraisal that the person doesn't know about already. Mm -hmm. And so when I'm on campuses and I suggest they have a mid-year informal, people look at me like, what are you talking about? And then I say, every month you should be having informal conversations where you're sharing strengths, appreciations, and areas of concern both ways. And you're taking notes so that everybody knows where they are. And so if in February there's a concern, you develop a performance plan, then you don't wait till April or June. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I mean, you know this, folks, especially out of their privileged identities, if folks have the corresponding marginal, are often hesitant. So whites giving clear, honest feedback to folks of color, we're afraid we'll be called racist. And we also know we've got racial stereotypes. And so we hold back because we know we will show up until we've done our work. And yet we give great, clear, consistent feedback to whites generally. There's, and I think uh, cis men to cis men is similar instead of to women and women across gender identities. And I could keep going. Yeah. So that comes to mind. Um, if someone is not getting the feedback or they're only getting positive feedback, today I relished. I mean, back then I was like, oh, good, I'm not in trouble because I hadn't done my work around family <laughs> and all that. Today I'd be saying, Here's what you've been telling me. Are there anything? So manage up. Are there any things you're concerned about? And I'd be asking in every meeting, here's what I did. Here were the things I learned from it. Anything else you would have me do? And I would train my supervisor to give constructive developmental uh, because I think it's a skill gap in the field. Tell me where I'm wrong. And so particularly folks with one or more marginalized identities, we need to, unfortunately, well, first of all, system intervention so more folks get trained and credible how to do this as supervisors and leaders, but in that relationship, um, having peers and mentors so that you get more support and do it and then manage up so that the classist, racist, sexist, um, gender identity, oppressive, ableist stuff doesn't come out in the performance appraisal sideways when folks are not able to engage conflict. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's easier sometimes to hear on, on a, you know, a lower stakes meeting on a, on a more frequent basis that feedback versus in the performance appraisal when it's in writing and when it's being signed by the director or something like that. Um, So there's a lot at stake there. And one other thought, negotiating before the performance appraisal Mm -hmm. to say, if we get in and either of us feel triggered, what I'd like us to be able to do is pause and either talk about that or literally take a break, whether it's 10 minutes and come back or come back to it in a day or two. Um, you know, these are high stakes. It's about my career and your career. And I'd like us to deepen our relationship and those moments will help us do it. But in the moment, if one of us is triggered, that may not be the time to have that conversation. And it's very common to feel triggered. And so can we negotiate that now and negotiate in the moment? So do that proactively may help when those arise in the moment. For sure. 
So I think one of the other characteristics of student affairs is that just because of the nature of our work, because of the late hours and the types of work that we do often live on positions, um, we often for form really close relationships with the people with whom we work. Um, and when conflict arises, it can be even more challenging because these are our friends, right? Um, so how can we, you know, how can we use that to our advantage and, and try to maintain relationships, but kind of acknowledging that that adds another element. I'm sounding like a broken record to me, but if you can pre-negotiate that with friends, but I'll bet that's not always usual. Though with good friends, it could be, you know, this was a little bump. My guess is we worked it out just fine. What are we going to do if we have a big bump and a big trigger? So I think it is possible, especially if you're doing training is on campuses, you can negotiate that. This actually was my experience in the last couple of weeks. Someone I dearly care about, I, I, it was a situation I thought could be a major conflict. So when you asked that question, I was like, ooh. Um, what I know is that I got real honest and vulnerable and said, this is what's going on. Here's what just happened. And can we talk about this? And then when we talked, I led with intention. I really value our friendship. I know we can work this out. Um, what was the impact when I shared what I shared? And we had the container because we'd done a number of significant conversations. And we had a deeper friendship that we could hold this very. Um, other relationships may not be able to hold it. And in student affairs, at least my memory is, there's not a lot of time to develop relationships outside of. And so the stakes might be higher. I'm afraid if you're not my friend, who is my friend? And yet mm -hmm. um, I believe honesty, connection, and in the moment, if folks are not skilled at navigating triggers, they may be triggered. And so it may need to come back in a couple of days and say, can we revisit that? You know, I, I know we talked, I wish I had handled it a little differently. I'd like to revisit because I value you in my life. Can we talk? Yeah. And any of those skills that we teach students to do in roommate conflicts or in student orgs or in admissions, right? It's harder when we're trying to practice and if I shake your head, I'm assuming that means, mm -hmm. yeah, I know. Mm -hmm. I can teach this. It's a lot harder for me to put in practice in the moment. But I hope people um, find that the book and the resources will help. Oh, yeah, I know that. Or I taught that already. But how do I put it in my daily life? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really key piece and something that um, I really took away reading the book was that, you know, a lot of the, a lot of what I was reading was, oh, my gosh, like, this is what I have been talking with students about, like how to negotiate and, you know, connect and then, you know, recognize your reactions. Um, so we have another question from Twitter. Um, so the, the question is from um, Cassie. I don't know what Cassie's last name is. Cassie Speaks is her Twitter handle. And she says, how do you address a person you have a conflict with who does not feel that there is a conflict or actually thinks that you're overreacting? So, so unacknowledges, I guess, um, that there's even a problem. So the proactive work at the group and organization level can be doing lots of good microaggressions work because this is a very common reaction from folks who they could be in privileged or marginal identities but haven't done enough social justice work to realize that when you stand next to the administrative assistance desk having a conversation as two leaders, that's a microaggression because they can't get their work done. Um, and so helping people in general have the common foundational knowledge of right. And then in the moment, if I anticipate it, I can say, this may seem like a small issue to you. Actually, I just did it in the last couple months. 
but it reflects a larger pattern that I've noticed, not only in the campus, in our department, but between you and me. And so I'd like to talk about this individual moment because I think it'll help us build our relationship and I think it'll help us as a team because this is a pattern of dynamics that keeps us from being as highly productive as we can. And you may think I'm overreacting. Sometimes I've thought that. But I also care about you enough that I want to share this with you because if I don't, and this is a third time something happens, my reaction may actually be larger than it should be. And I want to navigate me now by talking about it. It's almost like um, a gardening. We've got spring happening. Oh. You pull up the, the, the weed when it's this big. Mm-hmm. Cumulative impact, the weeds are about a foot tall. It's harder to pull up and it takes more. So let's talk about it now. And then I wouldn't leave the conversation without saying, now, I really appreciate you listening to me and, and understanding And my guess is over the last several weeks or a month, I've said or done things that were a small bump for you that you may have let go. I would love to hear them while I can, you know, change them before they get too rooted in me. Are there any things you want to give me feedback? So that instead of you're only talking to them, turn it into a mutual collaboration so that you build the relationship that we can talk about tough issues and conflicts, even if someone doesn't think it's a big issue. So I've been speaking with this um, several folks about um, the book and a colleague of mine who comes from a mar- marginalized identity talked about or specifically asked the question, um, how do you recommend folks proceed when their experience is specifically identity related? And especially because the field of student affairs is so small, um, people fear being unable to find jobs if they're kind of um, typecast, right, as angry or um, so, but instead, they should still be able to be called by the correct pronoun. They shouldn't have to suffer from racial microaggressions. Um, so, how do you know, like, where to draw the line and let things things go versus kind of helping people see that they're nice and hireable and and that kind of thing? Like, that's that's a tough balance sometimes to gather. And I love you linked nice and hireable together. Yeah, yeah. I think it's the culture. There might also be some oh. other group memberships operating here. That might be another call. Oh. Um, and I still relate. Yes. Um, again, if we can start at the interview or even. So if I was looking to hire folks, I would make sure everybody who's doing interviewing knows here's the professional development we've done. Here are our core values. Here's the ways we engage conflict. And here's how, what we expect folks, particularly in their privileged identities, to be doing as allies and accomplices. So that's just a clear expectation. It's in the job description. So if those materials are clear and that's what you're sharing, you're going to attract folk that that's attractive to. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're on the other side where you're job hunting or you're like, I'm going to be job hunting, so what do I challenge my supervisor around because I want their recommendation? I mean, those are all very difficult conversations yeah. and things to navigate. Um, It's easy for me with all my privileged identities to say I would only want to work in a place where I could be mostly me, authentically, unapologetically me, and that is a group of folks that are working towards inclusion and have done a lot of work already. And social justice is just part of. Unfortunately, in in my work, I find very few places that I would want to work or leaders I would work for. Um, Doesn't mean people aren't learning and growing, but so therefore your question. I would work my mentors of similar identity and say, 
help me think through, you know, finding people of similar different identities who are clear, authentic, and survive and successful. How do you negotiate relationships and clarity, holding integrity, speaking your truth within the politics of, we know that when people are hiring, they'll call your references, but then they'll call people they know. And so the person on the search committee that is pissed off because you held a line around racist questions, that might be the person they call, and then maybe you're not supposed to be working there. Um, And then inner work. For folks that I find, people I'm coaching, if they're attached to being liked, if they're attached to looking a certain way, mm-hmm. if um, to survive, they've been colluding, and they're no longer comfortable with that. Yeah. So hear me, I'm not telling people not to make choices. Yeah. That's not mine to say. But I know when I was coming out, there came a point where I was no longer willing to collude and not tell people I was lesbian. There still are days I don't necessarily lead with it. Um, but so, back on track. So the inner work of what's the fears, what's the anxiety, what's real, and who do I want to be in the world? I believe who we want to be and declare we set up. So this might be some woo-woo for folk. But if you're clear on what kind of place you want to work and lead with that from the very beginning, you may have more of an opportunity to find people, places, culture, so that being nice actually is not on the resume. And in fact, if you're nice, you'll be confronted because mm-hmm. what's going on behind that smile? I don't, it's not nice I'm looking for. It's effective, responsible engagement and creating change. Now, you don't have to do that attacking people, but you don't have to be smiling when you do it. You don't have to stuff your feelings in this organization in order to create change. Yeah, that that brings me to this next um, conversation I have a lot of times around the idea of success and likability. And, you know, you can either be successful or you can be liked. Um, And this binary often affects members of minoritized populations in different ways. So previously as as a woman leader on campus, I was very conscious of how when I was successful, I was perceived as self centered, individualistic, aggressive, Um, Yet when I aimed for nice and flexible and likable and friendly, I was frankly not seen as effective at getting my work done or seen as a good leader. So like this paradox is a really complicated one um, and and specifically for folks who are in minoritized populations. Well, if you all haven't done that in higher ed life lately, that would be a fun panel of Mm -hmm. senior folks with multiple identities and how they... um, As you were talking, I just saw that the climate and culture was not able to support you in your brilliance. Mm. And so I would want to be doing a systems change culture intervention so that everyone can be more clear and direct and honest and authentic. And yet, until that does occur, individuals who are brilliant, bright, and speak the truth to power are often the ones that are carrying the burden. So One thing would be how do we make sure that people in their privileged identities are held accountable for speaking up and speaking out? So that's training, that's performance appraisals, that's change your hiring. Who are you hiring and bringing in? Work with supervisors to make sure you're holding people out of their marginalized identities speaking up so that the folks in the marginalized identities aren't the ones that have to be clear, direct for the fifth time before they get hurt. And then to be honest, some team group development work where people reflect what do we do well what don't we do well where do we get stuck with a social justice lens and facilitating those conversations usually need external people from other campuses or someone else from campus to hold up the mirror about how level gender race age 
disability, sexuality gets in the way, uh, how people's biases and stereotypes and oppressive attitudes. So, cause you didn't need to change the culture and climate and the skills of your colleagues needed to change. And if folks are struggling with, I need to be nice. That's again, back to that self work. And I needed to learn skills and tools and strategies to speak my truth to power in ways that could be heard. I'm not saying collude and stuff. I am saying speak to the self-interest of the leaders. Speak in ways that they value and be heard and build relationships. It should be like this across mm-hmm. levels. And so if I just come in and I'm just always speaking and raising issues, after a while I won't be listened to. If mm-hmm. I build relationships, work on the projects, the leaders are, you know, and some people are saying, I don't want to have to play those games. Well, that's the job you chose. That's the work. Yeah. That's the yeah. work. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't think it's a game. It's just strategic and strategy. At least that's how I make meaning of it. Now, if it crosses a line, so it's abusive or whatever, but I think within any work environment, that's what we're going to find. So what are the projects of the leaders? What does strategic plan say? How can you be seen as doing your job well and then contributing to the campus mission? And then within that, building relationships so that when you want to raise issues, when there's a conflict, you have all of that within which to be heard, even with all your minoritized identities, which people will see you as less than not as competent. There was just a Harvard study that I heard about, Harvard Business Review, that mm-hmm. when they, I think they did uh, white women and men and women of color, when folks had on their resume stuff around inclusion, social justice, and or raised yeah. issues, yeah. it was used against them. Whereas if it was people assumed to be all privileged identities, it actually was a neutral and more benefit. So mm-hmm. there's just so many dynamics to juggle. And then in our national organizations, international, sorry, international, to be having these conversations in the affinity groups as well as on panels so that more people can realize it's not about them. We need to change the climate, the culture, our field, our campuses, and there's some development work. Early in my career, I was not effective as woman or as lesbian to raise issues. Today, I am much more effective, particularly as I claim my privilege and do it all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I think this brings me to my question about how when, um, folks of color, trans people, um, women, were often asked or tasked with work related to our identity. So, you know, we're the ones who are leading the discussions and advising the student organizations and doing the diversity training. And while all of these tasks are rewarding, you know, potentially individually, you know, collectively, they can lead to fatigue and, and, and also we feel this inability to say no, like, well, who else is going to do it Mm -hmm. if I don't step up and do it? Um, and so how do you stay like in that moment? How do you stay innovative, resilient and engaged? Um, you know, when that work is tied to our identity, so, you know, you're kind of living the work. There's there's a whole lot there. That that question. Well, that's a whole nother. Can you imagine a panel of folks come and talk? Yeah. So a new thought just came to me, um, I might say, so this is the fourth project that I've been tasked to do this yeah. semester, and I, um, I'm noticing my other colleagues aren't being called. It could be I'm not seeing it, but tell me where I'm wrong, Yeah. and then I would pause mm-hmm. and say, my fear is if I don't do it, it won't happen or won't happen to the quality we need. So let's negotiate. I'm willing to do this, and I want to go to NCORE. Mm-hmm. I want to go to SJTI, White Privilege Conference, or whatever it is. Or you have an ACPA, I also want to go to NASPA. Right? Mm-hmm. And so negotiate professional development, or I want an executive coach, or um, how are we going to change this dynamic starting in January? So 
let's talk about developing inclusion practitioners system-wide, people that get training and are assigned and responsible, held accountable for working with leaders to do these sorts of projects until everyone is up to speed. Um, and how are you going to change my job, current job, so that I have time to do this? Let's negotiate. And I want to raise, and I want a new job title. So again, some of that's possible. Some people are hearing this and going, none of that's possible. But envision. Um, and at some point, you might say, I actually am full, but I think two other folks, and let me recommend. Or mm-hmm. I'll do this one, but I want to bring in three other people so they can develop. Right? And we're going to need $2,000 to support this project. So whatever it is, I would love folks from the minoritized identities, however safe it is, but to start negotiating. Because um, until we do, the system will keep overusing and abusing. And I use that term intentionally. Mm-hmm. And if folks were on the, was it SA Pro Blackout a week and a half ago mm-hmm. or so? Just mm-hmm. powerful. If they haven't, to go find that on Facebook. Mm-hmm. More systems interventions to have people in power recognize the unbelievable damage and impact of folks at the individual level. We have to change it systemically until then negotiate. Um, And networks, mentors, some of the things I talked about before, but you hear me the theme today. I think I'm just in a systems change mood of all these tools in the book individually will help, but until the system and culture changes, this is a means to an end, but that's got to be the end. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kathy, we've had probably five or six or seven questions come in over Twitter, and I'm, I'm conscious of our time. Um, I want to get to one of them because I think it's a really great question, and I think it leads us to this next, um, this next piece, which is how you hope people use the content of the book and what, what you're offering as well. Um, so, and I would also say to all the folks who have asked questions over Twitter, and Kathy's really engaged on Twitter as well. So I'm sure, you know, a little bit of back and forth um, would be, would be great afterwards. Love so, to. so Shelly Story asks a question, what advice do you give people who want to get honest and vulnerable, but have little practice on how to start doing that? Hmm. I think reading the book is a good start. Yeah. They could also, because uh, you can get a free, I think you tweeted it. Yep. I also typed it out because, again, I was old yeah. school. I don't even know if you read it. <laughs> www.drkathyobear.com backslash book dash PDF. You can get a copy of the PDF. Get a few people. Maybe it's two, three people you really trust to come together and just kind of talk through and practice with each other and role play. And doing the exercises, even writing the book, I was like, ooh, I'm better now because I practiced the exercises that I created. Um, So that could be a place to start. Uh, To be honest, there might be two others. One is once you get onto my website, you can then go to my book in the, I think it's called the menu Mm -hmm. on the far right side. Go under my book under gift. I have a 10-minute animated video that's free that you can download and use in trainings or a lunch and learn and then a discussion guide. So you could help other people just begin to learn the concept of triggers if that's where you are as an organization. But both of those may help you learn a few more tools and skills. And then there's a lot of worksheets there as well that complement the book. And so that could be a place to start. I have written things out. One of the worksheets is when I'm triggered, what I wish I had said and what's going on underneath in the root. So literally just writing it out and then what I want to do moving forward 
it's practice for me. So whether you have a person that you trust for reevaluation counseling or a counselor or a peer group or a good friend or a partner, practicing it, writing it out could be a place. And I hope these free resources can be useful to you. The book is also on Amazon.com ebook. The paperback is coming up hopefully in a month. Um, but till then, or even after that, I wanted it always available free to folks just because I want it accessible to a broad range. I do want to say I wrote this book while I believe everything about it has a social justice woven in. Mm -hmm. I did write it for a broad audience so people could read it without having to be social justice educators, facilitators, unlike some of my earlier writings, um, like in the Art of Facilitation, the ACPA book, Lisa Landrum, editor. And so people could literally do a book club. I've known people that have said, I'm having my entire team read it and we're going to do professional development on it. I've had divisions say we're going to use it in professional development. So it's available. And I think by chapter, you may not want to do them all, or there might be a piece. Um, the chapter on self-care could be a whole thing, how to respond. Those could be ways to keep starting and keep going. Yeah. Yeah. And I liked that at the beginning of the book, you're like, if you need solutions now, don't stop, go, just go right to chapter 11 or chapter seven or something yeah, like yeah. that. That was good. I, I appreciate that because I'm sure some folks who are, you know, are, are desperate or really, really need a resource that they can hold on to to help guide them in the moment. Um, and I know when I've been in crisis before, it's like, where are the answers? You know, I need, I need a solution on how to, how to address this. So, um, Kathy, any final thoughts? I, you know, I think that part of what this book says to me is that you have a vision for social change. Um, and that this is your work that you're giving, you know, to the field, to the profession, um, and putting out there in the world. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you hope, um, you, you know, your, your grand vision for this work. I've not thought about it. That's great. What came to me was I really do see tens of thousands of people, whether it's through these resources or others, millions more effective in how they do the work in general or do it with a social justice lens. That is more people are able to navigate conflict, navigate toxic work environments, doing it in their home and their communities and just modeling and teaching and sharing and just rippling out. I mean, I do believe these skills in the UN, these skills in conflict between countries when ambassadors get together, I don't, and I don't think this is too grandiose. I'm not saying my skills. It could be the nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg. I mean, but these ways of being, until we heal as individual contributors and change agents, our energy and how we show up actually fuels, fuels the fire. But if we can clearly show up strategically, full of passion, full of emotion, I'm not saying get rid of emotion. When I'm in deep rage, I can do powerful interventions strategically. But when we do that, we will be instruments of change much better able to partner across privileged marginalized identities, effectively follow the leadership of people in marginalized identities. It's just we'll create the kind of change that we've been talking about for centuries, we've been focused on particularly lately in the national and natural context. But we have to also start within. We just cannot always be externally reacting to triggers. This is one piece of the puzzle that I hope people find useful in the work. And if people want further conversation on Twitter or email, I welcome it because I've learned a lot talking to you and preparing with your great questions and just really appreciate your time here in higher ed live. Oh, thank you so much, Kathy. This is absolutely fabulous. And I, you know, what you were just saying really resonates with me. Um, and, and I think from last week's show with Stephen John Quay, mm -hmm. we were talking about student development theory and how it's hard to teach those concepts. If you haven't 
reflected upon your own identity development. Like all of this stuff is interrelated. So yes, it is. Um, this is fantastic. Um, so Ooh, by the you. way, yes, this this free book could be a great graduate course. Yeah, adding it to a, a reading and a master's or doctorate level, several different types of courses I could imagine it in. Yeah. Sorry, you were yeah, closing. I mean, Go ahead. When I, when I think back about the things, the things I should have learned in grad school, and, and I went to an awesome graduate program, as you know, um, but what I wish I would have gotten more of is how these interpersonal dynamics in the workplace can undermine our success with students. Um, we do a lot of how do you show up with students and understand their identities, but it's it's all the interweaving of it that, that I think really impacts whether we're successful or not. Um, so this was a... This is a great conversation, and I'd love to have you back. And I think all of those, um, you know, follow-up conversations would be would be great as well. So thank you so much for your time, Kathy. Thank you so much. All the best. Yes. So um, Tony will be back on Higher Ed Live in April, April twentieth, with internationally recognized expert on higher education law and policy, Peter Lake, to talk about Title IX and the law. And then I'm going to be back on May 11th with the authors of the book, Generation Z Goes to College, Corey C. Miller and Megan Grace, um, talking a little bit about the the newest generation of students to hit our campuses and and what we need to do as student affairs professionals to be prepared to effectively serve them. You can receive reminders about this and all of the other great shows um, on Student Affairs Live by subscribing to our newsletter. You can browse our archives, and you can even download our iTunes podcast. So, again, um, I'm Heather Shea Gasser. Thanks for watching, everyone, and we hope you make it a great week.